we here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. The Rocky Mountains hold many mysteries. Millions of people enjoy the natural beauty. But some come across the hidden dangers. This is Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. I'm Melanie, here with my friend Becky. The stories we share are remembered by some, but forgotten by many. Let's dive in to Rocky Mountain Red-Handed. Hey, Beck. How, how are you? How are you doing, Mel? I am doing good. Another week of summer down. <laughs> we just got back. We went out to like a local reservoir with all the kids. We've been out in the sun for like four hours, right? So we're exhausted and tired, but it was so fun. It was so fun. We got to sit in the shade and the kids just played. It was mm-hmm. a blast. Yes. Yeah, it was great. We got some vitamin D in our bones today. Yeah, feeling good. Yeah. So, Mel. Do you remember your first, like, stereo, your first tape deck, CD player, whatever you had? Yes, it was huge. (laughs) It had two big speakers, the two cassette players. Wait, could you, like, take them apart? No. Oh, the speakers? Yes. Yes, you could take them apart, yeah. So you could, like, build surround sound around your bedroom? Yes, Mm -hmm. it was huge. Took up, like, the whole top of my dresser. Did you ever walk around the block with it on your shoulder? (laughs) No, I wasn't that cool. (laughs) Did you? you? (laughs) But I dreamed of it. We should we should do that. Just we walk around the neighborhood. Yeah. I love it. Uh-huh. I I'll tell you, I had an awesome double tape deck because back in the day we would make mixtapes, and you would sit by the radio and wait for your favorite song to come on. I'm old enough to remember. Do that. you remember that? Yes, okay. I and then that. when it came on, it was you like hurry, hurry, push, push, record and play at the same time, and then make sure the speakers were like side by side, like yep. right on top of each other. I remember that. I wish I still had my mixtapes. That'd be really cool. That would be amazing. Um, Well, our story today all started with a desire for a really nice stereo equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet, it ended with murder. Yes. Prosecutor Robert Newey of Weber County, Utah, was quoted saying, quote, When I went in to view the scene, I couldn't believe what I had seen. I couldn't believe it had happened, particularly in Ogden. It was very, very grisly. It was so needless. 40 miles north of Salt Lake City, you'll find Ogden, nestled next to the beautiful Wasatch Front Mountains. Not far from Ogden at Promontory Point, the first transcontinental railroad met in 1869. Thus, Ogden became a major junction for all the big rail lines. Mel, you remember the the famous picture with the two trains, like nose-to-nose men hanging off of it? You know, I didn't remember off the top of my head, so I did look it up, but yes, it does look familiar. It's a pretty, it's a very famous picture. Yeah. So if you don't know, it's like that a railroad started in California and a railroad started back east and they kind of made a game of it and raced and the West Coast Railroad had to go over like, like through the Rocky Mountains, right? Well, and it's well, more like Tahoe, Sierra Mountains. And so they only got as far as Utah. Yeah. Like the East Coast Railroad got to go across like the Midwest. Easy. Yeah. So it's kind of famous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter where you were traveling, north, south, east or west. Chances are you passed through Ogden. The city had a motto they were proud of. You can't get anywhere without coming to Ogden. Our story takes place on Monday, April 22nd, 1974, right on the main drag of Ogden City. The street is called Washington Boulevard, and it looks like any other small city built in the you know, 50s, 60s, 70s in the U.S. Small privately owned shops sat neatly in a row. Next to a dress shop, you may find an appliance repair shop. And next to that, you could maybe find a jeweler. 
there were no Walmarts back then. Yeah, my daughter was looking over the script and she said, oh, like that thing you do. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of picture that right now. So I love the individual shops that used to line the streets instead of like our big box stores we have now, right? Yeah. The Ma and Pa shops that local families owned, this is before the big box stores mm -hmm. kind of took over. Exactly. Yeah. So at 2323 Washington Boulevard in Ogden, you could visit a little store called the Hi-Fi Shop. Short for High Fidelity, the Hi-Fi Shop specialized in high-end stereo equipment. There you could look at Pioneer, Kenwood, Sherwood, and Sony equipment. Yeah, think, come on, Mel, let's get these 70s bands going. Jethro Tull, Supertramp, Leonard Skitter. You know, this is 1974. This is like some really good classic rock. It was Monday evening, and the shops along Washington Boulevard were all getting ready to close at 6 p.m. The hi-fi shop was just the same. Yep. Stanley Walker, 20 years old, and Michelle Ansley, who was 19, were busily preparing for closing time. Sherry Michelle Ansley, but everyone called her Michelle, had just started that week at Hi-Fi Shop. She was working as a cashier and a bookkeeper. Mm -hmm. She had attended Bonneville High School and was preparing to get married in August, just four months away. Stanley Walker was an Ogden boy, born and raised. He had graduated from Ben Lomond High School and attended Weber State College in Ogden. He was active in his church, popular, and had a great sense of charm and really enjoyed working at Hi-Fi Shop. He loved talking to people, yeah. It was a normal evening, a quiet weeknight. Michelle and Stan were probably looking forward to relaxing or spending time with loved ones. Until? Just before 6 p.m., two men walked into Hi-Fi with their guns drawn. If only this would have been a normal robbery. Stan and Michelle would have gladly handed over whatever they had wanted. Mm, this sounds kind of similar to the case we did with the movie shop. Yeah. She would have given mm -hmm. anything. Exactly. But this would not be a normal robbery. Within seconds, they had taken Michelle and Stanley under their full control. Mm -hmm. Then within just a few minutes of the beginning of this nightmare, the stakes grew even higher. A friend of Stanley's walked through the door. Courtney Naisbitt, 16, had just stopped at a downtown Photoshop to pick up some pictures that he had developed. Yeah, this is before digital photography, kids. I remember taking very careful inventory of what pictures who i've taken pictures of yep. if someone blinked the picture was worthless i blinked so much so that's why i take like <laughs> seven of the same picture yes. now i'm glad we had digital photography though but yeah you took a small amount of pictures and you prayed that your photos would come out so he'd gone to pick up some of these photos Courtney took a shortcut through the hi-fi shop to get to his car in the parking lot and he wanted to say hi to his friend stan Little did he know this shortcut would cost him so much. Yeah, Courtney was taken hostage along with Stanley and Michelle and led into a dark basement. From the outside, all looked well at the hi-fi shop. No one from the outside could tell what was happening inside the little shop. As the evening ticked on and family and friends noticed that Michelle, Stan, and Courtney hadn't made it home, they started to wonder what was going on over at the hi-fi Remember, this is before cell phones, and Ogden was a pretty small city. So when no one answered the phone at the shop, it was just really simple to hop in a car and drive over a few miles. Maybe something was holding them up that evening. Yeah, I mean, parents really tend to worry, don't we, Becky? Yeah, well, for sure. My parents still check on me all the time. They are the best, and I am 43. <laughs> Stanley's dad, Oren Walker, wondered what was taking his son so long to close up the hi-fi. 
Yeah, Stan was 20 years old, but he was never this late when working. What could be the holdup? Mm -hmm. He decided to stop in to see if he could help his son. Uh, Same with Courtney's mom, Carol. Carol expected Courtney home a long time ago. He was just 16, and he wasn't someone just to take off without letting his parents know where he was going. Yeah. Where was Courtney? He had just gone to pick up the photos, and he was supposed to come straight home. So knowing her son may have stopped by the hi-fi to see Stanley, Carol hopped in the car and drove down to the hi-fi shop to where was her son on that Monday evening. The worried parents unfortunately walked into a nightmare. They were greeted with a gun in their face and joined their children in the basement of the small shop. A simple burglary had now turned into the kidnapping of five people. The darkened shop sat quiet that evening. Washington Boulevard is the busiest street in Ogden. It's about 70,000 residents, you know, shopping and driving up and down the street. Yeah, this was evening time. Cities all but shut down after 6 or 7 p.m., All the businesses closed early so that everyone could be home with their families. Stores weren't open late or 24 hours like they are nowadays. Mm -hmm. Do you ever watch the old commercials on YouTube? No. Or the retro. There's like retro pages you can follow on Instagram. Mm -hmm. They were showing retro commercials and they were saying, you know, we're now open late, 8 (laughs) p.m. That's funny. And and towns just used to shut down in the evening. Like they don't do that anymore. Which I kind of like. Then everyone gets to go home and be with their Mm -hmm. family. Although if I wasn't able to go shopping late, that would be a problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm always forgetting something. Yeah. But I mean, after six o'clock, towns just shut down. So who's going to notice that the hi-fi shop, you know, parent, the... Who's going to notice trouble in town? Yeah. So all over Ogden, families gathered around the dinner table and the TV each evening. All in the family, Samford and Son and MASH were the favorite TV programs at the time. Yet there were a few families who were missing loved ones that evening. Things would never be the same. Mel, do you like tend to jump to extremes if, you know, Mike or one of your kids don't come home in time? Do you worry? A hundred percent. Do you really? Immediately. It's the worst case scenario. You're like always so cool. No. That's surprising. I to hide me. it well. <laughs> yeah, you do. What about you, Becky? Uh, I think I'm pretty chill. Yeah. Uh, with my older kids, with my boys, no. Because who knows what kind of trouble they're going to get That's into. That's true. But no, especially with my husband. He just shows up whenever. Yeah. <laughs> Hill Air Force Base sits about five miles south of Ogden, Utah, and employs around 10,000 to 15,000 military and civilians. Three airmen left the base that night on April 22nd, 1974, with one mission, to steal high-end stereo equipment. The men drove straight to the hi-fi shop. This was something they had planned out very well. With their friend Keith Roberts as the getaway driver, Dale Shelby Pierre, 22 years old, and William Andrews, 19, stormed the shop and quickly overtook Stanley and Michelle. Before too long, Courtney, Oren, and Carol were right next to their loved ones and friends. Pierre and Andrews held all five victims by gunpoint and restraints. The hi-fi shop sat undisturbed and darkened without anyone knowing what the terror was going on inside. It would only take two hours, but the events from this evening would destroy five families, take three lives, and steal the innocence of a Utah community. How many cars drove down Washington Boulevard that evening? How many gazed inside the darkened shop without knowing that death had arrived? The darkened shop would sit for around two hours, but soon the city would know what terror had unfolded inside. Later that evening, about 9.30 p.m., Orrin Walker's wife, Joyce Walker, had grown very concerned. They had not seen or heard from Stanley or Orrin that evening. Earlier that evening, Stan hadn't made it home, so Oren set out to check on his son. 
Now they were both gone. The Walker family usually gathered together for some family time on Monday night, yet they were missing two people. Joyce decided to bring Lynn, Stanley's younger brother, along and drive down to the hi-fi to see if she could find her husband and son. One of my sources for this case is a book I read years ago, actually. It's a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. Uh, It was written in 1982 by Gary Kinder, and it's called Victim, The Other Side of Murder. If you enjoy this episode, I highly recommend this. You get this book if you want to dig a little deeper into the case. Newsweek Magazine said it's, quote, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood Turned Inside Out. The book has become part of the training program for the FBI. It's also available on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And on Audible. That's where I listen to it. So here is an excerpt from the book Victim, The Other Side of Murder. Quote, when Stan had not shown up for dinner, Mr. Walker had driven to the shop to see if he had had trouble with the utility jeep that they had just bought. Mrs. Walker began to worry when two hours had passed and neither had returned home. A little after 10, she and the younger boy had gone to the shop. The boy, a strapping 16-year-old, had rung the buzzer in back. When he heard his father yelling for them to call the police and an ambulance, he had reared back and kicked in the locked door, end quote. After Lynn kicked the door down, Joyce and Lynn walked down the basement stairs and stepped into a nightmare. A panicked 911 call came into Ogden City Emergency Services. The only details that the dispatchers were able to pass on to two uniformed officers was, quote, unknown trouble, which literally could be anything. They had no idea what they were getting into. Could be anything. It could be kids playing dice in the street, or it could be murder. Yeah, Yeah. that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Ogden police officers G.H. Bowcut and Kay Youngberg answered the call and drove to the hi-fi shop on Washington Boulevard. As they slowed their vehicle down just outside the shop, a panicked woman ran towards their patrol car. She screamed that people had been killed and they were laying downstairs. The panicked woman was Joyce Walker, mother to Stanley Walker and wife to Orrin Walker. Yeah, the officers entered the shop and headed straight to the basement door. Um, they crept downstairs with their weapons drawn. Again, they had no clue what they were walking into. Was this like, was the perp still inside? Who knew? With weapons drawn, they reached the basement. Their eyes adjusted to the light and laid out in front of them. Four bodies lay motionless on the carpeting. The distinct smell of blood was in the air. That like thick iron metallic smell, Becky, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. And vomit. People had been very sick in this room. Very sick. The smell of death hung heavy in the air. Another victim, a fifth victim, was found upstairs. We have five victims total. George Throckmorton, a forensic crime scene specialist for Ogden City, was called to the scene of the murders. He recalls some memories from that night. Quote, when I got there, there was a man with a pen stuck in his ear running around. We now know that man was Oren Walker. Remember, he had driven from his home to Hi-Fi Shop to check on his son, Stanley. Mm-hmm. More from Throckmorton, quote, The first thing we noticed was there was four people down there who had been tied up. Their feet had also been tied up, with the exception of the one girl who had been raped and killed. We know the female victim to be Michelle. She had planned on getting married in just a few months. Ogden City was shocked that this would happen in their community. And the police department responded. Essentially, every officer was pulled into the hi-fi case to assist. Every detective and lab technician was there to find answers. Law enforcement was faced with the grisly facts. 
Three people had been murdered and two were critically injured. The two that survived were left for dead. Who would do such a thing? Ogden was such a close community. Stanley Walker, salesperson for Hi-Fi Shop, had been murdered. He was 20 years old. 20 years old. So oh, young. So, just so young. Sherry Michelle Ansley, cashier, and remember she did the bookkeeping there at Hi-Fi, had been brutally raped and murdered. She was just 19 years old. Carol Naisbitt was alive when emergency services arrived, but sadly she died en route to St. Benedict's Hospital. She was Courtney Naisbitt's mother, and she had just come by to look for her son. Mm-hmm. I know, it's so sad. Two survivors made it to the hospital, yet doctors doubted they would survive throughout the night. Despite critical, physical, and emotional trauma, Courtney Naisbitt and Orrin Walker survived that night of terror. Courtney Nesbitt, Carol's son and friend of Stanley, was just 16 years old. Thankfully, he survived the attack, but suffered lifelong serious injuries and permanent brain damage. He was hospitalized for 266 days following that evening. He survived, but his life was altered in every way possible. Mm-hmm. Orrin Walker survived. His son, Lynn, remember he came with his mom. He's the one that broke down the door to save his father. Oren lost his son, Stan, during the attack. Oren was the victim that was found with the pen sticking out of his ear. He had extensive burns around his mouth and face and had a broken eardrum. We will get to the pen and what caused that severe burns of all the victims later on in our story. Yeah, so let's take a moment for our first break and support our sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my Balance of Nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you so much to our sponsors. The detectives looked around and acknowledged immediately that the perpetrators who attacked these victims were not amateurs. They planned and carried out their mission with precision. They knew what they needed to do to steal the high-end stereo equipment. They knew there was going to be at least two employees to deal with. And instead of leaving them bound in the basement, they decided they needed to just end their lives, which is such a tragedy in this. Mm -hmm. But with the two family members looking for loved ones, Instead of two, they had killed three and injured two when their plan was complete. They did it all for $24,000 of stereo equipment. Mm -hmm. That would be over about $147,000 today. Which is a lot. Which is more than some people kill for, but still. It's just, it's over stereo equipment. Yeah. It's it's ridiculous. Tragedy. Orrin Walker was conscious and did not hesitate to assist the detectives in any way he could. This poor man had suffered. He was traumatized. He was badly, badly injured. Yet he chose to set aside his well-being and assist the police. Weber County Attorney Newey spent most of his time sitting next to Orrin Walker's hospital bed. Orrin courageously fought the pain and shared everything that he could recall. Thanks to Oren, law enforcement knew they were looking for two African-American men. With Oren's help, they had descriptions of each man. One of the men was taller and did most of the talking for the two. 
the other, the shorter one, wore glasses, and Oren said he barely opened his mouth. Even though the short man hardly spoke, Oren recognized a, like, Caribbean accent when he did speak. He also recalled seeing a yellow or cream-colored van parked behind the hi-fi store that night, which is, that's cool that he was able to remember this mm -hmm. much, because in traumatic situations, it's easy to block it out. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right with that. Mm -hmm. Weaver County Attorney Newey said, quote, once the word got out, it left the community in a state of disbelief, unrest, complete suspicion as to who had done it. Worried. Would they return? Who would they get next? From his hospital bed, Oren gave the detectives all the details he could, but it was still like finding a needle in a haystack. Until the next day, Tuesday, April 23rd at about 5 p.m., the detectives received a 911 call from two young boys from Hill Air Force Base. They had been going through large garbage cans in search of glass bottles. Mm -hmm. They were gathering as many as they could so they could turn the bottles in for spending money. Mel, do you remember? I never did it, I but either. I remember it was kind of a big deal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. while, while digging in a bin, the boys came across two wallets. They looked at the driver's license and recognized the names, Michelle Ansley and Courtney Nesbitt. They immediately called 911. Good for them. I know, yeah. Law enforcement flooded Hill Air Force Base and gathered the evidence found in the trash can. The detectives noticed a large crowd of airmen gathering around to watch what the police were doing, and they had a great idea. They had a hunch that the suspect or suspects were hidden in plain sight and watching their every move. So they decided to add a little dose of theatrics to their routine. Mm -hmm. They spoke loudly and dramatically to one another. They gathered, gathered all the evidence they could, like using tongs and made like a big spectacle of their work. They looked at the faces of all the men in the crowd. Two airmen acted very differently than the rest. They were like pacing around and speaking loudly while the rest of the crowd just you know, stood and silently watched the evidence retrieval. An Air Force officer who supervised these two men came forward and told Ogden Police Department that one of the men, William Andrews, had once told him that he would one day rob the Ogden Hi-Fi shop and he would kill anyone who got in his way. Yeah, who's telling their superior that? I don't know. That's just, yeah. The detectives were on their trail. The two men acting so sketchy escaped the crowd and tried to hide in their barracks. Dale S. Pierre, 21, who would later change his name to Pierre Del Selby, was a short black man who spoke with a distinct Caribbean accent. He lived in the barracks next to the bin where the wallets had been found. Mm -hmm. He spent much of his time with two other airmen. William Andrews, 20, and Keith Roberts, 19. They worked as helicopter mechanics there at Hill Air Force Base. Uh, police knew they needed to speak to all three of these men. Now, military authorities gave Ogden Police Department permission to search the three airmen's rooms. During the search, police found some much-needed evidence. Rubber gloves and cellophane record wrappers that bore the name of the hi-fi shop were initially found in their barracks. But detectives knew that they that would not be enough to arrest these men. District Attorney Newey shared with the media, quote, As they were about to leave, one of the officers pulled up the carpeting. Right in the middle of the carpet was a contract for a storage unit dated the day before the executions. Pierre had gone down and rented a storage unit reasonably close to the hi-fi shop, end quote. After finding the contract, Detective Throckmorton went back to where another detective was questioning Selby. 
Selby seemed to be unraveling for sure. He was like babbling to the detective and was acting extremely anxious, fidgeting. After seeing Selby acting so agitated, the detective said, quote, bingo, we've got him. I showed him the lease agreement and Pierre looked at me, shut his mouth and never spoke another word, end quote. Mel, I just got to tell you, I'm the worst liar. I would be the worst bad guy ever. I would act like this. I'm a terrible liar. I feel like people think I'm lying when I'm telling the truth. So I like try to be like, no, like really? I hate it. So we will never be committing any crimes, yes, especially no. together. Mm -hmm. Not, nope, not at all. Yeah. Selby and Williams were arrested immediately. And while he was being searched, law enforcement found a ring of keys in Selby's pocket. One of the keys on the key ring looked to belong to a padlock, just like the lock you would use to secure a storage unit. The detectives headed straight over to the storage space and spoke to the owner. Selby was quickly identified as the man who had rented the unit, supposedly to store a Corvette. Obviously, right? Mm -hmm. Law enforcement unlocked the lock and entered the storage unit on Wednesday morning, April 24th. This is just two days after the murders. They were working quick. Mm -hmm. High-end stereo equipment was stacked high in the storage space. Speakers, mm -hmm. amplifiers, tape, and eight track decks and Phonographs. Mm -hmm. I know the word. Speakers, amplifiers, tape, and eight track decks and phonographs, all of which had fingerprints from Pierre and Andrews. Along with the equipment, there were personal items belonging to Brent Richardson, who was the owner of Hi-Fi Shop. Yeah, the police had also found a bottle of liquid drain cleaner, more than half empty. Um, this household cleaner would become an important part of the state's case. An additional witness came forward with a lead that placed a second van, a blue van, outside of the hi-fi shop that dreadful evening. Andrews just so happened to own a blue van, of course. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. Police obtained the needed warrant and confiscated the vehicle. Drano was found spilled all over the floor mats in the vehicle. With Selby and Williams arrested and sitting in jail, the detectives continued to dig they knew there were more involved. Police believe up to six people could be involved with the murder. Detective White stated, I was interviewing people for two or three weeks after they were arrested. It was two or three weeks later I arrested Keith Leon Roberts, who was a third participant in the robbery. I was interviewing people around the crime scene area that identified him as the front door guard. During the next few months and years, Orrin was able to recall much of what they had experienced that evening in the basement of the hi-fi shop. Due to severe brain damage, Courtney, again, who was just 16 years old, Mel, mm -hmm. Courtney could not recall anything from the day of the attack. Victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder, the book that we mentioned earlier. It's written so powerfully that we want to share another excerpt for you. Mm -hmm. Mr. Kinder worked closely with the survivors and has been able to capture the physical and emotional trauma our victims experience today. So um, thank you again, Mr. Kinder. And this is from Victim, The Other Side of Murder. The back door of the hi-fi shop burst back on its hinges. Carol Nesbitt gazed down the stairs directly into the barrel of the taller man's revolver. What are you doing here, man? I'm checking on my son, she snapped. What is going on here? When Courtney heard his mother's voice at the top of the stairs, he said to himself, damn it. But he was still tied and helpless, facing the wall, afraid to speak out. He said nothing as his mother stood on the landing above. Then the short man sprinted up the stairs, squeezed in beside her, and waved her down into the basement. 
When they reached the bottom, he ran up the stairs again, pressed the door shut, and with a sharp click, threw the bolt. The light was now dim. Only the workshop bulb cast a faint glow through the crack left by the sliding panel. The short man tiptoed quickly down the stairs. He grabbed Carol by the arm, pulled her into the corner next to Courtney, and pressed down firmly on her shoulders. She bent awkwardly on her hands and knees and finally lay flat on the floor. A few inches from her face was the back of Courtney's head. Neither Courtney nor his mother spoke. As Courtney faced the wall, the man knelt over Carol and tied her hands and feet. The basement was silent, except for the short man's light footsteps as he walked over to the stool and picked up the green cup with the blue liquid. The man walked back across the room, the cup in his hand. He knelt next to Carol, propped her into a sitting position, and put the rim of the cup to her lips. We're going to have a little cocktail party, he said. I don't drink, said Carol. You will drink this, said the man. He seized the back of her head. The cup pressed against her teeth. It's vodka and some kind of German drug, said the taller man. It'll just put you to sleep. Courtney heard his mother swallow the liquid in a large gulp. Then she choked and began coughing loudly, spewing the liquid from her mouth and nose. The man lowered her to the carpet again, where she lay, still heavy and spitting. What is this? she asked. The man lowered her to the carpet again, where she lay, still heaving and spitting. He strutted to the other side of the room, held out the cup, and the taller man filled it again from the bottle in the brown bag. Courtney heard the man coming towards him. The man stepped over Carol. Courtney was twisted onto his back, then lifted by his neck into a sitting position. The edge of the cup was at his lips. The man's hand gripped the base of his neck. The fumes rising from the cup stung his nostrils as the cups tilted upward. The vicious liquid flowed across his lips, and suddenly they felt scalded. Then Courtney opened his mouth, and the liquid poured in until it overflowed onto his chin. His throat flexed, and with a jerk of his head, he swallowed. The liquid scorched his throat and oozed into his chest. He gagged, coughed violently, and vomited as the man lowered him onto the carpet. His mouth and esophagus were inflamed, and the burning was beginning to drip into his stomach. He lay on his side again, sweat beaded across his forehead. His stomach and chest rolled in convulsions. Behind him, his mother was moaning softly and spitting. He coughed. His throat puffed out and his lower lip sucked in as he gagged, then vomited more. Light tears wet the rims of his eyes. In his mouth and across his lips, sores were beginning to form. Some of the liquid still stuck in droplets in his chin and his cheeks burning his skin. Across the room, he heard the liquid gurgle from the bottle as the cup was filled again. Light footsteps trekked behind him. The man grunted with the effort of propping up Stan. Stan swallowed from the cup, then coughed explosively and began spitting. The man tiptoed back for more of the liquid and returned to Michelle. She swallowed too, but her coughing and spitting were not as loud as the others. The fifth cupful went to Mr. Walker. The man hoisted him up and poured the fluid into his mouth. Acrid fumes knifed up his nose and the lining of his mouth felt singed. He pretended to swallow. When the man lowered him into the shadow, he parted his lips and let the caustic leak out over his shoulder and onto the carpet. Then he coughed and spit as he had heard the others do. Mr. Walker had worked on electronic projects with Stan and had some knowledge of chemicals, especially those strong enough to etch metal. From the biting fumes and the sizzling in his mouth, he guessed that the liquid dripping onto his shoulder was hydrochloric acid. 
When the short man had lowered Mr. Walker to the floor, he filled the cup for the sixth time and returned to Stan, making him drink again from the cup. This time Stan began vomiting violently. Courtney had seized vomiting, but the caustic burned his throat, forcing him to cough and spit. The low moans and spitting and impulsive coughing had increased with each cupful the man had served until the room was filled with retching. To keep them from spitting the caustic out, the short man tried to cover their mouths with masking tape, but droplets of the caustic had formed on their lips and chins and the tape wouldn't stick. No lights shone in the basement now. Out back, a street lamp lit the parking alley like soft moonlight, the light coming dimly through the glass brick into the sound room above. Only a shaft of gray settled over the two men as they huddled now at the base of the stairs, whispering. Courtney heard their voices raise and lower, but he couldn't understand what they were saying. His wrists were rubbed raw by the cord. The skin began to break. His arms and shoulders felt stiff. If he pushed back against the cord, trying to stretch them, his muscles seized up and prickled. But the pain on the outside of his body was merely numbness. Inside, the caustic was burning his throat, down the lining of his esophagus, and into his stomach. And that's the end of the excerpt. Let's take our last break and support our sponsors. Rocky Mountain Red-Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my balance of nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code REDHANDED for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's balance of nature, promo code REDHANDED. Thank you to our sponsors. Now let's get back to our story. So Selby and Andrews bound their hostages in the basement of the hi-fi shop and forced them to drink Drano. So essentially, Drano is used to clean pipes. It's primarily made out of sodium hydroxide, commonly known as lye, and sodium hypochlorite, which is bleach. Lye can be used to decompose organic matter. Drano also includes small shards of aluminum, which works with the sodium hydroxide and actually generates near boiling temperatures now. Yikes, that's awful. To make matters worse, any type of water, like the 60% that makes up our bodies, actually reacts with the lye to create even more heat. Mm. So needless to say, this was just an, a horrific experience for them. Yeah. The men had gotten the idea from a movie that was released that spring. It was called Magnum Force, starring Clint Eastwood. And in the movie, a woman is killed when a man forces her to drink Drano. So I guess these guys thought that everything in the movies is real. Right. Yeah. Which it's not, people. Mm -mm, no. The woman dies quickly in the film, but in reality, this does not happen. The victims were forced to drink the Drano multiple times. Mm -hmm. Selby and Andrews even tried taping their mouths shut. So they couldn't vomit. But, you know, as we read in the excerpt, the tape wouldn't adhere to their lips and faces. The victims were already feeling the effects of the cleaner. I mean, their faces, their mouths, their lips, their throats were bleeding, blistering, and the skin from their faces and mouths and throat were literally peeling away. Mal. Oh Sources say that Andrew brought the Drano in from the van wrapped in a brown paper bag. Yet Selby is quoted in court saying, when I was using the bathroom, I saw the Drano in there. I remember the noise they were making, the sound of pain, really. 
So we had two different sources. Maybe they used two bottles. I don't know, but I thought I would include both in there. Yeah, yeah things were not going as Andrews and Selby had planned. Uh, their victims writhed in pain, cried out in agony, and were not deceased like mm-hmm. they had planned. This was a torturous situation. I say they were just torturing mm-hmm. them. Andrews left the room as Selby grabbed his gun. Selby shot Carol Naisbitt and Courtney Naisbitt in the back of the head. This shot killed Carol en route to the hospital mm-hmm. and then left Courtney with severe brain damage. Yeah. Next, he turned to Orrin Walker and Stan Walker. He missed Orrin and had to shoot again, this time grazing the back of his head. Um, Stanley was killed instantly. Selby then turned to Michelle Ainsley. She was laying in the far corner of the basement. Threatening her with his gun, he forced her to remove all of her clothing before he raped her. When he was finished, he allowed her to go to the bathroom. When she returned, still naked, he threw her to the ground and shot her in the back of the head. Selby realized his work was not complete. Orrin Walker was still breathing. With his gun empty, Selby wrapped a wire around Orrin's throat and attempted to strangle him, like, garrot style. Mm -hmm. When this didn't work, Selby reached for a ballpoint pen. He brutally kicked and stomped the pen into his ear. Um, From his inner ear, the pen exited through the side of his throat. Oh, my gosh. These men are just pure evil. Nightmare. Yeah. Then, like nothing had happened, Andrews and Selby walked away. They finished loading their van with the stereo equipment they desired and quietly left. They left their victims dead or dying, and they did it all for stereo equipment. It's monstrous. Michelle Ainsley and Stanley Walker were dead right away. Carol Naisbitt would die en route to the hospital. Um, Courtney Naisbitt and Orrin Walker were left for dead, but were seriously injured. The next thing Orrin remembers hearing is the sound of voices, familiar voices, voices that must have brought love and comfort to him in such a dark moment. Yeah, these were the voices of his wife, Joyce, and his son, Lynn. He did all he could to cry out to his family. His throat was burned, scalded, really, and bleeding. Lynn broke down the basement door and help arrived. Dale Selby Pierre, later changed to Pierre Dale Selby, William Andrews, and Keith Roberts were tried together for first-degree murder and robbery. The Deseret News reported on August 28, 1987, quote, Because of emotion and tension surrounding the case, it had been moved to Farmington from Ogden in a change of venue, still within the same judicial court. Ogden Judge John F. Walquist heard the case. Farmington is just about 20 miles away. Uh, The jury consisted of 11 men and one woman. Courtney was unable to testify due to his injuries and amnesia, and he did not attend the trial, but his father, Dr. Byram Naisbitt, testified. Orrin Walker was able to provide a powerful testimony that served as the keystone of the state's case. Roberts, the so-called driver, was convicted of robbery. He was paroled back in 1987. Has that changed in how we do court cases? Because I feel like now if you're involved at all and somebody dies, you get tried with murder as well. It sounds like he wasn't charged with that. Yeah. Originally, he was charged with first degree murder. He must have pled down. I assume. I didn't didn't see anything about that. But that's a good question. Selby and Andrews were found guilty on both counts and sentenced to death. Media coverage reported that both men sat silently while the verdicts were read. 
Yet as Andrews left the courtroom, surrounded by guards, Andrews craned his neck and found Oren Walker in the courtroom. He stared at the man he tried to kill for a moment and clenched his fists. Before Selby's execution, Oren Walker was able to testify before the Utah Board of Pardons. Oren stated that Selby, quote, seemed to be enjoying what he was doing, quote. In all, Selby attempted to end Oren's life five times that night at the hi-fi shop. On August 28, 1987, Selby died by lethal injection, which was the first in Utah. Before Selby's execution, a firing squad was used for capital punishment. The executive director of the Department of Corrections, Gary DeLund, gave the order to execute. DeLund stated, quote, It was a remarkably different from the way his victims died. This execution was very calm, very peaceful. It, meaning the lethal injection, is probably the most humanitarian way to end a life. Which he ended lives in the most unhumane way. Yeah, just horrific. Amnesty International held a candlelight vigil that night just outside the prison gates. Michael Spurgeon, state coordinator, said Amnesty International opposes the death penalty because it does not deter violent crime and is biased by race and economics class. After Selby died, Andrews had the opportunity to appeal one last time. He didn't believe he should be put to death because he did not pull the trigger that killed the victims. He believed he was a victim of error and youth. Now, if you remember, Andrews was the one that administered the Drano. Which he thought was going to kill them. Selby's the one that shot. In fact, I don't think, yeah, Andrews wasn't even in the room when the victims were shot and killed. But, but he gave them the Drano I, thinking that would kill them. And then I think it was just more horrific. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. In a 1992 interview, Andrew stated, quote, I am very ashamed with my participation in the crime. I feel a lot of remorse for the victims and family members of the victims. The appeal was unsuccessful, and after 18 years of appeals, Andrews died by lethal injection on July 30th, 1992. The two survivors have both passed on. Orrin Walker Jr. died February 13th, 2000, and Courtney Naisbitt died June 4th, 2002, Due to complications from his injuries, he sustained at Hi-Fi Shop. An amazing example of strength in this story is Dr. Byron Nesbitt. He lost his high school sweetheart and wife, Carol, in the Hi-Fi Shop murder, and he watched his son, Courtney, suffer from his injuries he sustained during the same attack, he, and he suffered the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. His, the rest of his life, constant complications. Mm-hmm. Yet, he never became bitter and lifeless. I think this is like... I wanted to include this in the story because I think this man is a great example of how to persevere through difficult trials. Mm-hmm. Um, he chose not to attend the executions. Dr. Naisbitt remarried and had a wonderful marriage and delivered thousands of babies in Ogden over his, get this now, 73-year-long practice. Wow. That's right, 73 years. Holy cow. In one family, he delivered four generations of babies. Wow, that's incredible. That gave me the chills. How Mm -hmm. cool. He was active in his church and served in many different callings. He was a member of the Ogden Rotary Club, traveled throughout the world, including Russia, China, all over Europe and South America, and he also found time to play the clarinet in a Dixieland band. So cute. In a 2012 interview, the ABC channel in Salt Lake City, he said, quote, my life is going to go on. Hey, nobody's going to change that but me. Nobody. Yeah. 
He did not allow the tragedy of hi-fi shop murders to define his life. I believe his first wife, Susan, would have been very proud of him. I think so as well. This is a case I had literally known my entire life. I actually remember watching the live broadcast of the candlelight vigil outside the prison in 1992. Can you believe that? I like, yeah, talk. Yeah. I watched the news a lot with my dad. I remember asking him why the people were standing outside the prison with candles. I mean, this is going to be a heated question, Becky, Mm -hmm. but what do you think about capital punishment? Um, I, I don't believe in capital punishment. If, uh, if I could have it banned across the United States, I would, I just, I don't see the reason that we need to take any more lives. How about you, Mel? This is where I can see both sides of the argument. I can see both sides for sure. Mm -hmm. I don't think I have a super strong opinion. I can, I can kind of see both sides and I haven't been like strongly persuaded either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. So what do you think about Andrew's sentence? You know, he didn't actually kill them. Andrews forced the Drano while Selby actually pulled the trigger. Andrews wasn't even in the room when Shelby shot our victim. So what do you think, Mal? What do you think about his sentence? I think we talked about it a little bit, and I think it was a fair sentence. He thought the Drano was going to kill, and he tortured them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I totally, I think he should have been charged as he was i agree that that um with especially those two it's guilty by association i also think that williams who just stood guard should have been charged for the same thing as well he went in knowing what the situation was i think Mm -hmm. and i think he should have been charged with murder as well i don't know all the legalities of what he pled so maybe there was reasons but yeah it would be interesting to see how much the driver knew yeah did i mean i guess we kind of know that they did go in the intention of hey if we have to if we have to take some people out we will totally but did he know that the drano was going to be a part did he know you know what i mean yeah i think he should have gotten life in prison maybe not death but i think life in prison yeah it's a it's a very complex case that's for sure Yeah. yeah so as always our prayers go out to the families of the victims and the entire community in ogden This terrible crime happened quite a long time ago, but I'm sure it still affects that community. Yeah, I'm sure that it does. Good job to the Ogden Police Department. They really solved this incredibly quickly, and they were really thorough in their investigation. It was incredibly quick. Love to see Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, they really did a great job. Good job, Ogden. So, Mel, now it's time for our Rocky Mountain Redemption. Yes, we deserve a good story today. So, let's hear a good story about Utah. Yes. So, Tony Caputo's Deli in downtown Salt Lake City has a group of retired people who meet every day and drink a cup of coffee, chat, give advice, and they say they solve the world's problems. I don't know if I should say this here. Yeah. But my sister-in-law's grandma, when she would travel anywhere, she would avoid Utah because she thought that we didn't serve coffee in Utah. So she would drive like around the state. Are you kidding me? Because she was like, Utah doesn't serve coffee. (laughs) So I'm not going there. So for our listeners that don't know, I think we should definitely leave this in. For our listeners that don't know, a lot of people who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints do not drink coffee. But I promise if you come through our state, you can find coffee wherever you would like. So yeah, so don't worry. You don't need to drive around Utah. Yes. You can get a cup of coffee. There are plenty of Starbucks (laughs) and lots of other coffee shops. Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. So um, 
back to this story. That's what I want to do when I'm old. Just sit around and work on solving the world's Sol- problems. Let's solve the world problems together. So let's do it. I think that's a fantastic idea. Instead of coffee, though, let's eat tacos. Oh, love tacos. We are really good at that together. We love tacos. In fact, I was thinking today that we ate tacos yesterday for we- lunch and we had tacos today. Did you have a taco? I did not have a taco today. What did you have? I didn't get anything from Cafe Rio. You didn't? No, I just got oh. something from my kids. I ended up getting just pinto beans. and It was really good. Oh, that was good. Yeah. So these retirees, <laughs> I'm so sorry, listeners. I think you should shatty. just leave it on. Yeah. So these retirees from Tony Caputo's decided to take their wisdom as a joke to the local farmers market under a banner that reads "Old Coots Giving Advice." It's really bad, but it's free. And then they <laughs> sit there every Saturday. It's adorable. I think it's so great. It started as a joke by Tony Caputo himself, who is one of the men that would sit around and solve the world problems. So yet it became one of the most popular booths at the Salt Lake Farmer's Market. I don't, I don't know if you've been to the Salt Lake Farmer's Market. I have not. It's big. Really? It's a great farmer's market. Lots yeah. So each Saturday, a line forms for their advice, good or bad. The community loves to hear what these old coots think. Which I'm, I'm going to say, they call themselves coots. So, so we're I'm not being to derogatory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One man came and asked for advice on his landscaping. He said, these patches keep showing up in my lawn. The coots' advice? Get a new house. Just move. Just move. Just Your move. grass is awful. Move. <laughs> One woman asked, what's the secret to happiness? The advice she received? Put all your money in Bitcoin. I mean, if you've gotten that advice at the beginning of Bitcoin. You know what? At the right timing. That could be great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A new mom asked the coots how she can raise her child without messing the kid up. The answer? You're going to mess them up a little bit, but that's how they grow. Right. Is it really wise? I agree with that advice. Very wise, yeah. So it all started as a joke, but the coots loved talking to their community, especially the younger people. These retirees are bringing smiles, laughs, and we'll say iffy advice to their entire community. Some of it's good. Some of it's yeah. a little questionable. <laughs> And the community loves it. I love it, too. I love it. And Tony Caputo's, I heard, I have not been there myself, but I heard it's an amazing deli. I've heard of it. So check him out if you're ever in Salt Lake. Tony Caputo's. Mm -hmm. And that's your Rocky Mountain Redemption. Yeah. Don't forget to reach out to us if you don't already have your Rocky Mountain Red-Handed sticker. Just contact us by sending a DM to at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed as our Instagram. You can send us a message on Facebook or email us at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed at gmail.com. And we'll get those in the mail. I love it. We've given away a lot of stickers. Yeah, I'm excited. It's so so fun. fun. It's way fun. And you guys, don't forget to share this episode with your friends um, and your family or on social media, whatever. We really appreciate it and it really helps out the show. So we appreciate you listeners out there. Yeah. And if you have a sticker, send us a picture of it. We'll share it on our social media Mm -hmm, something. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you have a minute, please like rate and review on apple podcasts it really helps us out um on spotify i think you can like us but Mm -hmm. you can't write a review so so thank you so much to everyone out there we love you listeners so we will be back next wednesday so until next time keep keep your your hands hands clean. clean